Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. I hope this finds you all well in this new year of 2023. Um, to start, uh, I want to introduce a new sponsor. Um, it's my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms. And uh, sponsorship, it really helps me to bring this show out to the audience and to the to the listeners, you all. Um, when I decided to take on sponsors, I really wanted to make sure that they were in alignment with uh, kind of the thread and the values of this podcast. Um, one of the big things that this podcast focuses on is plant medicine and natural medicine. And really throughout history, throughout antiquity, uh, mushrooms have been one of the the main plant or fungi, fungal uh, medicines uh, really used in, in uh, holistic health and natural health. Um, they've been considered not only really medicines, but teachers as well. And on the medicinal front, um, they, they have a whole list of uh, therapeutic uses for, for human health and longevity. Um, in, in many ancient cultures, there's a long history of working with uh, medicinal mushrooms. Um, and really, there's now a, a really big growing body of scientific evidence that, that really supports uh, the claims of many different therapeutic and health benefits of mushrooms. Um, mushrooms are something I've worked a lot with uh, in the past with medicinal mushrooms, things like reishi, chaga, turkey tail, lion's mane, uh, cordyceps. Uh, and I'm a really big fan. I'm a really big proponent of them. Um, and so I was really excited when uh, the guys at Real Mushrooms agreed to come on board. Uh, Jeff, who I interviewed in episode 81, um, works with them and also his son, Sky, who I hope to interview in the near future. Um, they're a really good company, uh, really good guys. And um, you know, for better or for worse, the, the supplement industry is really loosely regulated, uh, so you often uh, don't really know what you're getting. Um, if you're lucky, you're getting a good product. If you're not so lucky, you may be getting very little of the purported product. In some cases, maybe uh, nothing at all. Um, this is definitely the case with mushrooms, um, and uh, unlike some of the other big mushroom companies, uh, Real Mushrooms uses uh, pure mushrooms, which I think is really important. Some of the other big companies companies actually use uh, mycelium that's uh, grown on grain and then those two things are blended together and that ends up in the final product. So with real mushrooms you're getting 100% pure mushrooms. Um, so again, I was really happy they came on board, uh, really happy to promote their product. They're, they're two really good guys, really good company. Uh, so if you're interested in medicinal mushrooms, uh, check out their website at realmushrooms.com. And also listeners to this receive 25% off their first order. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. My guest for today uh, is a really interesting woman. Her name is Joan Wilcox. Um, I became familiar with her uh, probably when I moved to the Sacred Valley of Peru. Um, she spent um, a lot of time working with a group of people called the Caro, who you all may be familiar with. Uh, they're a group of uh, indigenous Peruvians who consider themselves uh, descendants of the Incas, and they carry a really long line of knowledge, um, which is uh, it's very beautiful. The, the philosophy, um, the inner workings, the traditions of that, there's a lot of, there's a lot of beauty, a lot of wisdom, a, a lot of power in that philosophy. 
And Joan wrote um, a really amazing book called Masters of the Living Energy, The Mystical World of the Caro of Peru. Um, and she speaks from her own experience. She did a lot of interviews with various Caros. And that book is uh, quite old now. I think it's 25, 30 years old. So she was, uh, I think, really one of the pioneers of people who went down and uh, really began to learn from these people and, and archive that information, which I think is super important. Um you know, in the sense of really keeping that tradition alive in a documented form and preserving the, the libraries of which really each of those Pacos or healers are. They're a library in and of themselves. And when they pass away, which uh, all of the ones who, who Joan interviewed and knew have, uh, at least there's still a, a living tradition of, of that knowledge. So uh, I was really happy and excited to interview her. Uh, she also wrote a book called Ayahuasca, the Visionary and Healing Powers of the Vine of the Soul, which we didn't get into, um, but that could be a great topic for uh, another interview. But I was really keen to interview her about um, some of these uh, Indian uh, cultures and cosmovisions, because I think there's a, a lot of wisdom there and a lot of wisdom for our time. I really enjoyed this interview. Um, she, she speaks really well, and she uh, cultivates uh, or, and cultivates and conveys a lot of um, these ideas, which I think are, are super valuable in the Caro and other Andean cosmovisions that really um, are valuable and, and relate very, very specifically to the time we're living in. So uh, it was a great interview. I, I very much enjoyed having Joan on. Uh, I learned a lot, and I think you all will learn a lot too. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Joan. From the maze. Running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out from the maze today. Running out from the maze, running out from the maze, running out of the maze today. Joan, well, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I I guess I, I heard about you. So I, I moved down to the Peruvian Amazon about probably 10 years ago now. Uh, and that's where I had been living and working. And then at the beginning of the pandemic, I ended up moving to the Sacred Valley, uh, mainly for my own personal work. But then also I became very interested in a lot of the Andean cultures, the, the Caro, the, the Cosmovision there. It was something I, I'd always known about being in the Amazon. But for whatever reason, I just never left the Amazon. I was quite content there. Um, so it's been really interesting living in, in the Sacred Valley of Peru and, and familiarizing myself more with those cultures. And when I started looking at material, uh, your book was one of the first ones that came up, uh, just kind of a Google search, but also uh, recommendations from friends. And when I read it, it was it was a, it was and is a really beautiful read. And, and just in preparation for this interview, I was rereading it. And um, there's there, there's a lot of beauty in there and, and, and a real simplicity, which I also find is often the mark of something that's quite profound is it's it's quite it's quite easy Maybe not to get the depths of it, but but 
to be able to take it into ourselves. So um, I, I think that's a real uh, testament to, to your own work and research and, and the people that you worked with. So um, maybe just to start, uh, if you could speak a little bit about yourself, who you are, what your background is. I, I know we're, we're speaking to you right now from North Carolina and what brought you down to Peru you know, because you, that book, I think, as you mentioned, was something like 25 years old, which is a long time. I mean, a lot of this work is, is becoming much more widely known and accepted. But 25 years ago, not many people were going down and interested in this work. So, so what that journey was like for you? Well, thank you for having me. And hello to all of your listeners. I'm delighted to be here. Um, you know, it's hard to say what originally drew me down. It wasn't rational. Um, I had studied, I'm a very curious person and I don't believe life's worth living without exploring all the mysteries. So I like to be at the frontier and like push over the edge. Um, so always been interested in many different things. And one of them is consciousness, uh, quote unquote, spirituality. Um, and I had, and when I, when I'm curious about something, I tend to take a deep dive. So, I, you know, at 17, I learned to meditate, and I had a very long and rigorous meditation practice. And then years later, I got interested in shamanism, and I had a very long and rigorous shamanic practice. And um, in the early 1990s, I heard about the Andean tradition and initially explored it here in the States with a teacher. And it was beautiful work, um, but after a year or two, just, it just wasn't a fit in terms of the way of the teaching and the way I was being taught. And um, to be perfectly frank, I totally honor this teacher and his work. But when I went to Peru with him, I didn't find in Peru what I was learning in the States. And I understand that now much better than I understood it then, because we do have to translate things for our culture for our way of thinking, or it's, you know, we're not Indians, we're not weavers and farmers living in isolation up in the mountains. So we do have to translate things. But I didn't really understand that at the time. And I was looking for something different. And just through, a, you know, you, this is the, the same old story through a series of synchronicities. I met Juan Nunes del Prado, who's an anthropologist. Uh, many people know him because of his father, who mounted the first modern expedition up to the Karos um, villages in 1955. Juan eventually um, began to study the tradition. He grew up, you know, the Karo would come down out of the mountains that stay at his family's home and stuff. Um, and anyway, I really, he and I clicked. We just had a resonance together and he became my primary teacher. And he's been my teacher for the last, going on 28 years. Um, and what I think, what I understand now that I didn't understand then is that, um, this isn't easy to explain, so bear with me, um, that there are various stages of learning and practicing that we can equate with stages of our refinement of our consciousness. It's like a path of conscious evolution. And that most of the teachings were taking place at the level that the world is at, which is the third level, which is a level of learning everything precisely, the correct way to do a ritual, 
Um, you know, everybody does it the same way, or there's a thing called a despacho, which is a nature offering, and it can be very elaborate with lots of items put in it. And you learn the meaning of all of the items and the way to arrange it and offer it. It's very formulaic. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to learn that. We, we can't skip a step. But with Juan, he was teaching from what I call, what he calls now the fourth level. And I didn't get that for decades. I really didn't really get that till about seven or eight years ago um, because I just wasn't ready for that level of consciousness or that level of practice. But what the fourth level is, is it takes us from um, a practice that is more rote and formulaic and standard which is the way we have to learn, the way things have been done all the time. And it takes it from a place of routine to a place of personal artistry. And in the Andes, that's very important because the, it's almost a natural law of the cosmovision of the Andes. And, and I need to say when I'm talking about the Andes, I'm talking about the mountain tradition not talking about the Amazonian tradition or the North Coast tradition. They have different cosmovisions, different understanding, and a different way of working with energy. So I'm talking about the mountain tradition. Um, and um, in, in the practice, in, in that cosmovision, and really throughout the others as well, there's a concept called Aini. And Aini means reciprocity. And it's the way we make exchanges with the universe, with other people, all kinds of things like that. Okay, it's reciprocity. And at the third level, we learn the, the mechanics of reciprocity. And at the fourth level, we really start learning the artistry of it. And it becomes incredibly individual. Your Aini is not my Aini because we're different people with different life experiences and beliefs. So nothing can be rote or formulaic, really. And Juan was teaching me in that way, but I didn't get it for a long, long time, you know. And it wasn't, like I say, until around 2015. So, you know, I started working with him in 1995, so 20 years later, that I really started to be able to understand the approach of the fourth level to the Andean tradition or any other tradition, and to live it. Um, so that doesn't really answer your question about what drew me to, to Peru, but I think it answers the questions of what has kept me committed to this path for nearly 30 years. Um, a core, core principle of this tradition is that is the understanding of your Inca seed, your Inca muyu, which is Quechua for your Inca seed. And your Inca seed is an energetic structure that's in your body, in the middle of your body. And it's your connection to your origin, which is whatever the unknowable is, whatever comes before the material life, to your spirit. There's a difference between the spirit and the soul in the Andes. The spirit is your drop of God. Your soul is your humanness, what makes Jason, Jason, and Joan, Joan. Um, and approaching the tradition from the fourth level is all about learning to 
access what's already inside you, which is your Inca seed. And it's a tiny little energetic structure, with a, but it's a huge information field. And it's both universal and personal. It's universal in that it encodes within us everything possible for the expression of our humanness. Every possible expression of our humanness. It's held in potential within us. But it's very personal because the constellation, the way those characteristics and possibilities and capacities are constellated within us, it's different for each one of us. So we share the universality of being human, but your expression of your humanness is totally different than my expression of my humanness. And so the power of this path, excuse me for one sec, the power of this path is to access and live from your Inca seed. Um, and it's really a fourth level approach because it's, it's about the artistry of your artistry in expressing your humanity. I know that sounds very abstract, <laughs> you know, but I can give you some specific examples if you want, because this is a very practical tradition. That's the other thing that drew me to it. There's not a lot of dogma. There's not a, you know, a, a stable of hundreds of gods and goddesses. There's next to no ritual or ceremony. Um, it's very practical and efficient. It's about learning to perceive, tune, and move energy. And it starts with learning to perceive your own energetic state and move and tune yourself. You know, so, so when I talk about the Inca seed and the practicality of the tradition, the Inca seed is like our inner compass. Because your Inca seed is a constellation of the human capacities that are different than mine, your compass has got a different true north than mine. Okay, But if we are in touch with our Inca seed, with the core of our spirit and our beingness, that will always be pointed to the true north of what's true for us, for each one of us individually, to be able to express ourselves, our drop of the mystery, which is unique, it's different than everybody else's. We'll be able to express it if we, if we pay attention to our Inca seed, which always tells us the truth and always points us in the right direction. And how do we do that? Very simple. Energetically, you listen to your body. Your body's the truth meter. And when you feel an inner dissonance, you're probably not listening to your inner truth. But when you feel an inner resonance, you probably are. And this becomes very practical. We can use it in every aspect of our lives. I'll give you a couple of practical examples from my, from my own life, because, you know, I'll just use my own experience, firsthand experience. Um, I never thought of myself as a teacher of the tradition. I was a writer. I'm a writer, basically. And I had taught a little bit, wanted, encouraged me to, and it, it just, it, I didn't find a lot of satisfaction in it. But in 2015, my life just fell apart. It was a disaster. I got laid off from my job. I was in my mid-50s. I couldn't get a job anywhere. Who wants a you know 55-year-old 
writer, you know, who I was in marketing and I didn't know technology and all of the, you know, online stuff. And you, you can't be in that field if you don't know that. So I was a dinosaur. Anyway, I had a house and a mortgage, other things happening. I, they found a precancerous spot in my lung. So I was dealing with that. My mother, who I'm, is my hero, heroine, and who I'm so, was so, so close to was dying. It was just a disastrous year. And um, in my Ine with the universe, I became really clear that I really was going to walk my talk like never before because I had nothing to lose, you know. And in my reciprocity with the universe, I became very clear. And I, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm looking for a job. I can't find a job. But you know what? I don't want a job. I just want to live my life. I want to be compensated for being Joan. We should all just be compensated for living our lives, you know. And I had like six or seven like qualities I wanted. And um, within like eight months, everything happened that fulfilled the, those intentions. I didn't try to do anything except be open for opportunity because I know through being in the jungle and working with ayahuasca that the universe is infinitely more creative than I could ever be. You know, and so I was going to leave it to the universe to figure out the packaging, the how. And I just was clear about the what. In any case, I hooked up with Juan after not seeing him for a long, long time. And he made a request of me that I immediately said no to. He said, you know, this is, is what he said. He said, after my son, you know this tradition better than anybody in the world. Will you open the U.S. school? And for about three seconds, my ego was like, wow. And then the fourth second, it was like, oh, my gosh, no. Because my immediately thinking, I need a building. I need, you know, accommodations people, for people to sleep. I need transportation. I need someone to cook food. That's not me. My body was in complete dissonance. And I listened to that and said, no. I, you know, I said, I'll think about it, but it's unlikely. Okay. So just listening, even though my ego might have said, oh, go for it, my body, my inconceit was saying, no, you're not a person that has a huge organization. You're not a person to run a huge organization. You'd hate that. So I did end up teaching, though, and it was a whole different experience for me, and it was a beautiful experience because I was listening to my inconceit. So I started traveling, and in two years, I amassed like 93,000 miles, and it was exhausting. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I don't know jack about technology, but I'm going to figure out how to do this online. And I did. I was scared, but I did, and it worked. Okay. And that felt the resonance was there for that. I could be more relaxed and present. I wasn't exhausted all the time. I could keep things so cheap. My, my trainings are really inexpensive because I don't have a, a lot of expenses. And it was, you know, people didn't have to travel and take off from work. There were a lot of pluses around it. But then I decided I'm going to give everybody for free an audio recording of every class. And like other people that were teaching the tradition, I was in touch with a lot, few people that were teaching, and they were like, you can't do that. You know, they're then going to share it with their, their friends, and you, you're going to, you know, you're denying yourself future students. And, and it, I said, oh, well, you know, they have a point. And for about three seconds, and I listened to my Inca seed, and I said, no, I'm not going to be the policewoman of their integrity. <laughs> That's not my job. And I know after 20 whatever years at that point, 23 years, 
that I sat through Juan's trainings over and over and over again. I kept going back to my recordings, to my notes. And as I grew, I would find new things or understand new things. There's no way to master a tradition sitting through a training once. And I knew how valuable that was for me, and I wanted that for my students because it's just practical. It's necessary. So I give free recordings, and I don't try to police integrity around that and things. Because it, my seed said yes to that. Even though my logic was, my, like the business logic was saying, well, maybe not such a great idea. So you can see how mundane these little decisions are. But when you make them through your seed, you're, you're being who you are. I'm being the kind of teacher I am, not the kind of teacher anybody else is. I like to keep things really personal. I teach 20 to 25 people in each class, and I only teach three, three foundation trainings a year. I'm never going to reach more than, you know, 75 people a year. I'm not looking to reach thousands and have a huge organization. That's my seed, and I'm immensely happy with it, and my students are as well. We have an incredibly personal three-month experience together. So it, it, we bring it down into the practicalities of life and in and, and touch with who we are. That's the power of this tradition. That's what this tradition taught me. And that's the fourth level approach to this tradition. Um, and it's life-changing. To walk through life is who you really are rather than who you think you should be or who you're spouse or your parents tell you you should be or, you know, who your culture tells you you should be and all of that kind of stuff. So it's a path that's not about rose-colored glasses and pink ribbons and bluebirds. It's about how do I live as who I truly am in the greatest amount of authenticity and joy and bringing as much light to the world as I can. So long, long answer to a short question. Uh, but that's the power for me of this tradition. When you've been taught it the way I was taught it, which is kind of rare, and I'm Juan's, you know, I, I'm in, I walk in Juan's footsteps and I teach the same way from the fourth level. This is what's important to us. Not making a despacho, not carrying a misha. A misha, for those of you who don't know, is like a medicine bundle, a little bundle, cloth bundle that has your sacred objects in it. They mean something, and there's a way to use them, but it's not about that. It's about you accessing your personal power, you knowing who you are, you knowing what brings you joy, and then you'll engage the world in an authentic and joyful and productive and light-filled way. So, Yeah, amazing. When you were speaking, it reminded me there, there's a gentleman who I've worked with a few times. He comes from the Arawaku people in the, the Sierra Nevada of Colombia. Um, there's there's kind of three groups that are well-known, the, the Kogi, the Arawaku, and I think the Waira is maybe the third. Um, but I found him very interesting because um, people would often ask questions, you know, these very complex questions about their own health or the world or cosmovisions and uh, I found his answer was almost always something very similar. And his answer was always something along the lines of falta pagamento, which in Spanish means you're missing a payment. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. um, and and I think a lot goes back to that idea of Aini, which you were speaking about. Yes. And and I think that's a concept that, that maybe more people are becoming familiar with, this idea of reciprocity. 
but I think there's also a lot of confusion about that too. Is is that something you could expand upon more? That that idea. Sure. Of you know the idea of Aini, A Y N I Aini in Quechua, which we could translate as reciprocity. It's a it's a universal idea through most spiritual traditions back through recorded history. The golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Kind of like karma. It's not karma, but it's kind of like, you know, what goes around comes around kind of a thing. Okay. It's that there's a living universe. There's more than just this material world. There's a living universe. There's a first consciousness. And that nothing is, everything is interconnected. And so for every, you know, in physics, for every action, there's a reaction. Um, That gets misinterpreted or misunderstood a lot, especially in things like, you know, like the, the book and the movie, The Secret, where, you know, and what the bleak do we know, where if you just think it, you can create it. That's way too simplistic because the, universe is mind-bogglingly complex. The amount of reciprocity going on is mind-boggling. So when we do have, we do put out energy and we get a response. We get feedback from the universe. But in terms of creating our reality and those kinds of things, no, we can influence the living universe. We can influence reality. Um, but we're just one tiny speck in this vast universe of mind-boggling complexity in terms of give and take. So that's the first thing we have. We have to be practical about what our influence is. And our influence is more robust locally than globally. Okay, so if I decide that... I want to improve a relationship and I take action to that, there can be a much more robust Aini than if I'm going to sit there and meditate and pray for, you know, the well-being of all all sentient creatures. Okay. I'm going to have an effect, but it's going to maybe be tiny compared to what I can do in my local environment. Okay. So this is the practicality, the, the, the efficiency and the simplicity of, of Aini. The thing people forget about Aini, where they go off on this, the secret tangent, is they think it's all about intention. And in intention, our consciousness drives everything. But a lot of our intentions are unconscious. We have a very complex psychology, and, you know, it's the... the the, the, the iceberg, which, you know, one-tenth of it is above the surface and nine-tenths is below the surface. And we have us, our unconscious is driving so much of our Aini. We wonder why things are a mess in our lives or even maybe why things are great in our lives. And there's no rational explanation for it because it's our unconscious is driving, which is why we need to be on a path of conscious evolution or we need to be self-reflective. We need to know ourselves, need to do our shadow work. I think shadow work, psychological work combined with this kind of energy work is is like rocket fuel for improving our Aini. But Aini is not just intention. There's no Aini without action. 
you can sit here all day. My teacher Juan was saying this one day, so I'll just use his example. You can sit here all day and try to intend that there's going to be a Porsche in your driveway. And probably there's not going to be a Porsche in your driveway. Okay? There has to be action behind our ironing. Okay? So I can't just think about improving my relationship with my friend that I've had a falling out with. I have to act on it. Action is also awareness because most people that we put out our intention and then we just wait for the manifestation, but we're not paying attention to the feedback. And INI is about being aware of the feedback from the universe. And sometimes that feedback looks nothing like what we intended. And if we're paying attention to the feedback in our INI, then we can course correct our actions and our intentions. Okay, we're getting information back that, you know, in order for you to manifest this intention, you need to do this first, or you need to, you know, take care of this in yourself, or you need to realize this about yourself, or whatever. There's, it's not like preconditions, but there are um, maybe stages to being able to, um, your intention to, to manifest in the material world, say, okay? So there's feedback, and a lot of people forget to really listen to the feedback. It's like, you know, in prayer. We pray, but how often do we listen for the, you know, the return, okay? So uh, praying is also listening to God, if you have that sensibility, that religious sensibility. So, um, so I need at the core of everything. Because INI is about, is really, INI is a practice of learning how to be in the world with your full complement of capabilities, which are both material and spiritual, which are both physical and energetic, which are both personal and interpersonal, which are both local and global. Okay? So it's... Um, it's like nested dolls in a way to understand all the implications of INI. Um, it, it's a powerful, powerful kind of natural law of the Andes. Um, and I think sometimes it's oversimplified. You, you were speaking a bit earlier, and, and I have a few quotes from the book, and, and it reminded me of, of this one. You, you were mentioning the, the fourth level and... Um, uh, the, the quote is, um, also because Juan considers almost all Western cultures as ready, as already having attained or on the verge of attaining the fourth level of consciousness, it is appropriate to uh, concretize this achievement in the Watun Karpai, which is a rite of the fourth level. One is ready for the fourth level when one can, as Juan explains, overcome personal and cultural boundaries and find God everywhere in a church, a mosque, a temple, or an eco ruin, end quote. That seems really important. Um, maybe could you expand upon on, on, sure. in the Indian Cosmovision what those levels are? Because it, you know, especially in the time we're living in, it, it seems like we are living in a very divided state. And, and I think a lot of people understand that, maybe on an intellectual level, that, that God is in all things. But but as you said through Aini, our, our actions are often very different than, than yeah. maybe what our understanding is. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, absolutely. You, you've honed in on some of the core things here. So 
This is the difference between the thir third and the fourth level. Most of the world is at the third level. The third level, um, and we're translating what the Pacos said. The Pacos are the practitioners of the uh, Andean tradition. Um, they're not philosophers, okay? So this is translating it, but it's true to their intent and to the way they present it. They, Don Benito Coriwaman talks about seven levels of power, of personal power. Not power in terms of domination or, you know, that kind of thing, but personal power is living from your Inca seed, what you have the capacity to do in the world and be in the world. So he talks about seven levels of, of personal power. And they, the first four dovetail almost perfectly with Houston Smith, philosopher of religion, Houston Smith's four spiritual personality types. Okay. And other systems of that there are seven levels of consciousness. So we make a translation using Houston Smith and others to take it from this very simple way that Don Benito explained it and to make it useful for our culture. Because each culture has a gift, and most of the world, the gift is yachai, which is intellect. The gift of the Andes, the Pacos say, the Andean people say, their gift is munai, which is love under your will. And they're, the, 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 other, the third human, these are the three human powers, munai, yachai, yankai. Love, but not sentimental, a choice for love, intellect, and action. Okay, and our Western cultures, we're way developed in yachai, which is why we dominate the world, because we, we've developed science and writing and reading and, uh, you know, software development and technology. The world has changed through our yachai. We haven't learned to touch our emotions. The Indians can teach us munai. But, but anyway, that's another discussion. But the third level is where most of us are at. And in very simplistic terms, the third level is a place of certainty and um, categorization. Um, the third level is a place where, of, of really of duality, okay? So if you really have, there's, I have to say too that there are very refined and uh, what we'll call light ways of expressing each level. So there's a, a level of the, there's an aspect of being at the third level where you create no heaviness. It's, it's a lightness of being. But there's an aspect of the third level that's very heavy. And this is the level of duality because this is a level where people say, ah, I've found the truth. And I have the truth and you don't. And my truth is conservative republicanism or leftist democracy or evangelical Christianity or conservative Islam or whatever. I have found the one true God. I have found the truth. And you don't have it, so I have to save your soul or I have to battle you. Okay? It becomes very antagonistic or it comes, becomes very hubristic. Very, okay. Um, and the, the, the third level is, is where you say, I'm right and you're wrong. The, so the third level is about competition. It's about seeing differences. 
So before I talk about the world, let me talk about the fourth level. The fourth level has much less heaviness because at the fourth level, you get past that kind of, um, it's not that you get totally past duality because the Andeans see the world as a core dualism, okay? The cosmic father, the earthly mother. The Yanantan is a sacred concept in the Andes. And the Yanantan is not necessarily duality, but it's differences. Differences exist in the created world. And um, they're complementary, though. You can't have night without day. You can't have male without female. You can't have up without down or in without out, okay? So they're complementary dualities that can be made to harmonize, okay? So at the fourth level, you start seeking that harmonization. Yes, I'm a conservative Republican and you're a liberal Democrat, but here's where we can meet in the middle and get along. It's called bipartisanship, <laughs> okay? Yes, you're not from my country, and my country has enough problems, and you need to stay away. You know, that's the third level. The fourth level is, yes, maybe there's room for you in this country, but there's not room for everybody. How can we make a fair system of inclusion rather than just saying, you're different, you're excluded? Nationalism, okay? Um, so the fourth level is getting beyond confusing the symbol for what it signifies so that I haven't found the one true God and you haven't. All the forms of God that we have developed all lead back to the same one energy, the same originating, animating cause. Okay? I call it I call the third level the sweet seduction of the form. And the fourth level is acknowledging that there are forms, but not being seduced by the forms. But it's a place of looking for cooperation rather than competition, inclusion rather than exclusion, similarities rather than differences. Okay, so it's a whole it's a whole refinement of consciousness, and therefore your ini is completely different. When you go into your inkasid, you don't only see your own inkasid, you don't only honor and know your own inkasid. I have to honor, and I might not know, but I have to honor your inkasid, which is different than mine. You know, so the world today, we say, is in a massive struggle to move to, in the Andes, there's not just personal conscious evolution, there's species-wide conscious evolution. The whole of humanity is, is evolving toward what they call the Runakai Mosok, the new humanity, okay? That's a fourth level humanity. And the world right now is in this struggle between those who are already at the beginning of the fourth level, or those who feel it resonating within them and are working toward it, and those who are scared stiff about anything changing, they're so comfortable with the certainty of the third level that they're, they're afraid of change. They're afraid of, you know, our culture, Western culture is so afraid of consciousness, of exploring consciousness, right? Because what is, if you explore your consciousness, what does that mean? It means you have set yourself free to decide for yourself 
And we really like the herd mentality. You know, you wander from the herd. It's a little bit dangerous. It's definitely daring, but it can be dangerous. And, well, you might pull people away from my herd, and I don't want them going. You get the whole idea, right? So we have this herd mentality at a third level, and there's people that are just reacting in fear and want to keep the way things always have been. But it's only as they know it's been. It wasn't like what their parents knew or their you know, ancestors knew. So we're in a struggle for the third to the fourth level. And the fourth level is the fourth level is the level of the Texie. T-E-Q-S-E. In Quechua, it means the universal. What's it's not about Americans and Canadians and Italians and Peruvians. It's about humanity. We're all human beings. So it's getting beyond the national identity and the borders and the flags and the customs and the cultures and just saying we're all human beings. And we're in a huge struggle for that. There's parts of our world right now that are global. Our currencies are global. They're no longer physical, really. They're blips of electromagnetic you know, energy being funneled around the world. Our world is global, even though we're still struggling with nationalism and borders and culture and flags. COVID has shown us that. Um, you know, wars show us that. Natural disasters show us that. We're globally in connect, interconnected, and what happens to the supply chains in China affects what's in my kitchen pantry and what's in my business's stock room. Okay, we're global. So we're in a global, we're in a shift to the fourth, to the taxi level, the global level. But as human beings, we're just so struggling from that core cultural set, um, you know, confident, um, understandable identity rather than just allowing us all to be human and express our humanity in different ways. That's the struggle right now. And there's a terrible backlash. And that backlash is showing up is all the things at the third level. Difference. You're different than me. Stay out. My country's white and Christian. Too many brown people here. Okay. I mean, that's what's going on in the U.S. right now. The whole border crisis. There are practical aspects to it, too. We can't not be practical, but I'm talking at a more um, compassionate, uh, uh, value-based level, okay? And the world is struggling with this everywhere, okay? Um, should we be isolationist, or should we care about what's happening in the other, people, other countries and try to help them, sometimes at the expense of ourselves? There's all kinds of struggles about how we live as a human race rather than as Americans and Canadians and Peruvians and Ecuadorians and whatever. Okay? So that's the struggle between the third and the fourth level in very practical, realistic terms for us right now. And to see it that way, excuse me for one second, to see it that way can lift us above it. It's like lifting ourselves above the turmoil of the storm. You're not denying the storm is happening, but you're not being so buffeted by it. 
and you can look at it more objectively and maybe more compassionately because you can see the big picture of what's going on, you know. And so when you're in the midst of the storm, it's hard to get, it's hard to get out of the storm. But if you can just at least momentarily get out of the storm, you're going to see, oh, it's just a storm. It's going to pass. It's destructive. But how can I help ameliorate, ameliorate the destruction or help those who have suffered or, or whatever? It just gives you a whole different perspective, you know. So I think that's, that's how I see it anyway. And it's a very hopeful stance because you understand we are moving toward the fourth level. It's like a, you know, a caterpillar that has to dissolve itself to become a butterfly. We're in the disintegration process. We haven't reformed ourselves yet. And sometimes that reformation process, process is, is, you know, it looks dangerous and it's, it's, um, it's messy and it's even ugly, um, but we can emerge from it in a more beautiful way, a more fluent way, a more fluid way, which is the butterfly. We, we, we loose ourselves from the materialism of the earth and can fly, you know, so. Are you familiar with the distinction or, or, or are there of the, I guess, the fifth, sixth and seventh levels? Yes. And, and we say that there are no fifth level human beings that we know of. Working with nature spirits can take you, working with energy, working with nature spirits just intuitively can take you to the third level. The tra some kind of training doesn't have to be Andean, could be Buddhist or whatever, can take you to the fourth level. After that, you have to work with what they call the universal spirit beings. Okay. And there can be no imposters to the fifth level. The fifth level is what the prophecies of the Andes tells us is imminent if we do our work. We've got to go through the fourth. You can't skip a step, so we have to get through the fourth level first. But there can be no imposters to the fifth level because at the fifth level, we've developed even beyond the fourth level. And at the fifth level, we start living in our everyday normal lives with what we would consider now meta-normal human capacities. Capacities our science and our medicine and our religions and whatever tells us are not possible. They're magical. They're supernatural. At the, so one of the, manif one of the, the um, manifestations of the fifth level is the infallible, of the fifth level is the infallible healer. And it's very concrete. You're an infallible healer. You can, by touch, you can heal everything and anything every time without failure. Someone has a leg amputated, you regrow the leg. Somebody has dentures, you regrow the teeth. Someone's schizophrenic, you cure the schizophrenia. Has cancer, you cure You empty out the hospitals. So there's no imposters to the fifth level. We have had humans who have displayed fifth level abilities in the past if we believe certain um, religious historical texts. Be because after the Buddha was awakened through almost a darshan, through a, a sharing of that awakened energy, Ananda and the other disciples of Buddha were able to perform miracles. Um, with Jesus, they're representative of, of six level beings. 
This has nothing to do with religion or uh, spiritual tradition. They're prototypes of the enlightened human being. Okay? And so with Jesus, when Jesus um, died and resurrected, he was on the earth for 40 days teaching. And then on the day, what we call in the Catholic Church, the day of Pentecost, he ascended. And on that day, the way whatever God is kept touch with the human world was through the Holy Spirit. That was when the Holy Spirit descended into the world. So that's the connection with whatever God is now, right? And when the Holy Spirit descended, we hear in the Bible, if we take it as a historical text, that the tongue of fire came down over the Jesus' 12 disciples' heads. And after the descent of the Holy Spirit, they got more God-like capacities. They became miracle workers. The book of Acts and the Bible are the acts of the apostles, the miracles of the apostles. They could raise from the dead. They could heal with a touch. So we know, and they were just human beings, fishermen, tax collectors, farmers, okay, just like us, normal human beings. They attained fifth-level capacities. Um, we don't know of anybody on the earth. We know people that have had touches of the fifth level. I think like Sai Baba can do miraculous things, pull verbuti or ash, sacred ash out of the year, manifest a, a pearl necklace. There are people, they have touches of the fifth level, but they're, they're not totally, they're not, they haven't firmly elevated themselves to the fifth level. Um, so we know it's possible. And the Indians are, everything energetically, they say, is in place right now for us to make the leap to the fourth level and then open the the uh, way to the fifth level. But the fifth level, you can't learn. You can't train for the fifth level. According to the Indians, just like in these historical texts or these religious texts, the fifth level is a, is a descent of the power of God. So it's given through the awakened ones who are sixth level, they're godlike, or it's just a spontaneous download from whatever God is that you attain the fifth level. And then the sixth level is the enlightened human being. You're still in the world, you're still human, but you're using, you're fully expressed your Inca seed and, not a, and are not causing any heaviness in the world. You're a bringer of Sami or lightness or joy and goodness and compassion to the world. And, and then there's a seventh level, which the Andeans don't tell us anything about. The seventh level is the God as human and the human as God. Actually being God in the flesh, which is a step above the enlightened human being. You know, there's, you might be familiar with Terence McKenna. He's written a lot about um, psychotropics and psychedelics and things like that. And he was, a, he was a great scholar of human evolution, especially about language. Um, but he, he said something once that reminded me of what the Andeans say about the seventh level. He said he thought that the ultimate development of a human being would be when we can externalize our soul. And I see that as us being able to live as who we really are, which is a drop of God, whatever God is for you. But I'm just using that word stripped of all its religious connotations. When we can externalize the soul, the soul is our humanness. And when, when our spirit, our inca seed, 
we're living fully from our intercede as you're living fully as Jason and I'm living fully as Joan. We're externalizing our soul, which is our humanness, but through our spirit. Our intercede is always connected to its origin point, which is whatever God is. There's a, we have an energetic anatomy, and there's a, uh, a, 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 an energetic, not a center, but an energetic point that's right at the forehead, the turn of the forehead. It's called the pukyu. And the pukyu, it means a spring. It's like, a, it's like water that bubbles up from the, the surface of the earth from an underground water source. It's called the pukyu. And that pukyu is always drawing sami, which is the light living energy, the animating energy of the universe. It's always feeding this animating energy straight down, down our spine and into our inca seed. So we're, we have an unbroken continuous flow of this God energy, this animating energy to our Inca seed. And that Inca seed is always trying to pull us up to express this, these more and more refined aspects of our humanness until we're God in the human form. And we make our world a heaven on earth. The Andean traditions, what we call a descending spiritual tradition. There's two kinds of spiritual traditions, an ascending and a descending. Most of, most of the world religions are ascending spiritual traditions. You're trying to get the hell out of the body. The body's corrupt. The, you know, I mean, we might love nature, but there's temptation and there's sin and the body is gross and can be, and can suffer. And there's all kinds of gross temptations and we're trying to get out of the body and we're trying to earn our way or deserve our way to be accepted by God. That's how most traditions are. Most shamanic or many indigenous traditions are descending traditions, which said we need to realize what we are. We are God in the material world. We're the expression of God, and we just need to not just remember that, but learn to live as that. So where we see the physical and the material world as sacred, and we we sac resacralize the world and we resacralize ourselves. So we're not looking to leap beyond the human. We're looking to refine the human until it's, it's, it's realized its potential, which is godlike. Not even godlike, which is God. So yeah, that was those are the three upper levels. That's where we're aspiring to. We don't have small goals in the Andes. <laughs> We're very practical, but we have big goals. <laughs> it, it, it reminded me of another quote, um, and, and this was about uh, power, which you mentioned uh, mm -hmm. a bit earlier. And it's an interesting word. It, it, it's something, when I began working with ayahuasca and, and learning from a lot of, especially the Shpibo shamans who I worked with, um, it was a word that I became familiar with. And, and then especially when I, I began working a lot with tobacco, um, th there is this quality of this cultivation of power. And yes. often I found it was very interesting when I would speak about that, because I, I think, as you said, kind of to the Western mind, yeah. uh, that word has, has either been corrupted or, or there's, there's a very, there's a misunderstanding of it. Yeah. People are very uh, off put or, or hesitant about it. Yeah. And, and this quote was really beautiful. And, and I think it was just so well said. And it's, um, 
It's a、uh, Juan's use of the word power raises an important point for Westerners. For all Westerners, not just those of us living in mystical relationship with the universe, Juan says in the Western tradition we are afraid of the word power. We think the power is dangerous, that it is not good. But no, power is only power. It is the difference between being able to do something and not being able to do it. If you want to do good things, if you want to do bad things, because for that you also need power. But if you want to do good things in your life and in the lives of those around you, you must have power. You need power. But power is only power, he stresses. You must decide how you use it based on your ability to use it. Or, sorry,、uh, but、uh, you must use it not based on your ability to use it, but based on your moral rule. Sometimes you will not do something, not because you do not have the power to do it, but because you follow a moral rule that tells you not to do it.、Mm-hmm. On the other hand, there are people who are prevented from acting, not because of their moral rule, but because they do not have the power to do it. They have no choice. Understand? The thing is to have power to do everything. Then the next thing is to have the personal morals to know how to use or not to use your power. But do not be mistaken. We are looking for power when we try to establish a connection with the living energy. And I think that was just, for me, that was so beautifully said. I mean, it very resonates、yeah. a lot with my own understanding of、yeah. it. And one th- there's two things that really stood out for me. One is this idea that we do want to acquire power. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm.、Um, because I think a lot of people do associate power with the more negative side of it, but forgetting that. That, like anything, power is also used for good and, and not only、yeah. used, it's, it's necessary, it's a requisite.、Yeah. And then also, this idea of morality, or I often use the word principle, and something I really see that I think is lacking in a lot of our societies is we've either forgotten principle or we hold principle very loosely. And, and when the winds begin to blow, Those principles kind of crumble because we、mm-hmm. don't necessarily truly believe in them. And maybe, as you were speaking about earlier, we believe them on an intellectual level, but when push comes to shove, those principles aren't rooted. They're, they're, not, they're not strong. They're not、exactly. like stone pillars.、Um, so, is that, is that a concept you could speak a bit more about? Because I, I think, especially in this work, it's something that, that it's very misunderstood.、Um, mm-hmm. And I think something that. that Is really useful to, to, to clarify more. Yes, absolutely. You keep honing in on the, the gems. And you can see why I was in resonance with Juan, because he's an amazing teacher and he's a teacher from the fourth level. So I talked about Aini before, and I said that Aini is not just intention, it's action. Okay. So you have to have the ability to take action, and that's power, personal power. We talk about personal power. That this is a path about learning how to accumulate personal power. What we mean by that is to access your Kanai. Kanai means to know who you really are, but not only to know who you really are, to have the power to live as who you really are.、Okay? Against all the pushback from the world and others and so forth, but still to get along with everyone. And to allow others to do that in a way that might be very different from you. Okay, so we have to have power to do anything. I can't get up out of this chair if I, my muscles aren't powering my, my lift, okay? I can't speak unless there's some power through my vocal cords and from my lungs. There's, there's you know, there's, nothing happens without power. 
okay? Power is the ability to do anything. That's how we mean it. We don't mean it as power over, dominance, those kinds of hierarchical concepts. It's more like physics, force, you know, you've got to, you know, um, Einstein said, nothing happens until something moves. Well, you've got to have a force or power for something to move. So we can't move. We can't grow. We'll be totally stagnant. And there's no life in stagnation. We have to move and grow. And, um, well, we don't have to. We make a choice to. But anyway, we're, we're not stagnant. So we're using power all the time, whether we call it that or not. Um, but in the Andes, there's like two, there's one energy. I kind of have to just to tell you about this before I can talk about morals, okay? There's one energy, and that energy is kausai. Kausai is the animating energy of the universe. It's what gives life. It's what life is, okay? And there's a spectrum, and it's, Every possible frequency configuration of kausai, a tree is one kind of configuration of all the frequencies of kausai in the material world. And, you know, my eyeglasses are another configuration and my body is another configuration and so forth and so on. Okay. And in this spectrum of energy, energy's nature is to move. As Einstein said, nothing happens until something moves. Kausai's nature is to move. We want the life force, we want to, we have to take it in, we want it to move through us and animate us, and then we want to move it out and share it, okay? It doesn't, uh, so we, we move it through us. But because of our humanness, the complexity of our psychology and our emotions and our wounds and our traumas from our soul, from our living in this very difficult human world, we can block some of that animating energy, okay? And we, what we do is we block it, and it, over, over time it can keep us from expressing our seed. It can increase our unhappiness. It can sometimes even degrade our health, okay? Not because it's negative or bad or contaminating or dirty, but we call it hucha. Hucha is not sin. It's That's how it's defined in most Quechua dictionaries. It's not sin. That's, the, that's what the Christianization of the culture has done, named it. Hucha is simply slow kausai. It's slow sami. So it's a slow life force energy. And that slowness, instead of being light, and it's not light in terms of visible light. It's sami is lightness in terms of the lightness of being, the lightness of your spirit. Hucha weighs us down. It makes us feel heavy. So hucha is not sin or bad or negative or evil. It's just heavy. Okay? So when we're slowing the life force energy down, it's much more difficult to know yourself, to um, develop your Inca seed. You become more isolated. And um, it can prevent you from having, you know, then interacting with the world because we we can only love others in proportion to how we love ourselves. We can only treat others in proportion to how well or badly we treat ourselves. You know, the, the Vedic tradition says the world you're not in the you're not in the world. The world is in you. 
and that the Andeans would concur with that. The state of your ink seed inside you is going to reflect in how you are in the world and how you treat others and stuff. So, so it's not so much morality, but it's about values. I like the word values. We cannot live in a human world without values. It's impossible, okay? Unless you're, uh, you escape to a cave and you live alone in a cave or a cage or a prison cell or something, then you're free of values because you're free of any kind of having to, any kind of Ine. There's no interaction with others, okay? Um, you can have values in, in, in response to what happens to you. You know, a storm comes through or the prison guard is nasty or whatever. But it, but I'm talking about, you know, the greater participation in human life. We can't live without values because we're a community of humanity. And we choose values deep, deep down in our unconscious and in our cultural, archetypal ways. What are the values that we hold? Um, so people like... Um, uh, what's his name? I can't think of his name now. Um, he he wrote The Clash of Civilizations, Samuel Huffington or something like that. I can't remember. He said, what's happening in the world now is not a clash of cultures, it's a clash of values. I think that book is has a lot of, it's written a long time ago, but it's so pertinent to what's going on today. So we have to have values because values are how we agree to get along or not get along, okay? And so as you, as you accumulate personal power, think about that as you gain insight into the self. You have more self-awareness. And with more self-awareness, you have a bigger repertoire of behavior and ways of thinking that are more inclusive, more fourth level, usually, okay? And, um, and therefore, your values kind of follow along with that. And your values become more refined. That's the ideal, okay? That's the upward progress of humanity. But hucha is just slow sami. And whenever we're doing anything, we're moving energy. And the only energy there is is sami, the life force energy. And so people that have a lot of hucha, their power is hucha. And they're moving very heavy energy. And they're going to attract people that are resonating, their Inca seeds resonating at that level of energy, which is heavy energy. And usually it's detrimental and hurtful to the larger values of society. So you can be, you know, you can be walking in a, um, I don't know, a, 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 a protest march or a march to save the animals or the earth or whatever, okay, for, and whatever. And you're in your individual power and you're all in your individual powers and you're a community that's life force is coming together for to send this wonderful message. And then one hooligan or one heavy person starts causing problems and suddenly the whole mob, it deteriorates into a mob mentality, okay? That's us then resonating with the hucha. And there's a lot of very powerful people who are, their power is their hucha. Most dictators in the world, 
the Idi Amin's and the Pol Pot's of the world and, you know, the Hitler's or whatever, they were moving their heaviness as a power. Okay? And there's no moral overlay on that at the level of energy. Energy is just energy. There's a spectrum of very refined light energy and very heavy, slow energy. Then the values come in. And he's moving a lot of heavy energy, and he's resonating at this very slow, kind of less refined, it, it really kind of brings you down in the consciousness level. But then the values come in, and the values were, I hate Jews, I hate gypsies, I hate homosexuals, I don't want you in my country, I'm going to kill you off. That's, that's values, Okay. And when you get enough people that are sharing your values, then as a group you have the power to do, and that means to kill or to imprison or whatever. But it starts with the quality of the energy you're moving. You're moving heavy energy or light energy, you know. And then how we do in the world is usually predicated upon the values we hold. Yeah. And so it's important that we accumulate personal power, but we do our personal work so that we're moving Sami through us, that we're, you know, in the Andes, the prophecy is in a shift as well. The upper world is the level of beings that are pure Sami, the enlightened ones, the angels, the saints, and all of that, right? The totem, if there's a, I'll use the word totem. It's not really a totem animal like we think of, in native North Americanism, but the, the gatekeeper of the upper world was a condor. And the condor is the eater of hucha. The way we eat our hucha, we transform it. It's just slow Sami. We speed it back up and we're more filled with Sami. So the gatekeeper of the, of the purely Sami filled world is the eater of hucha because you have to eat your hucha before you can get there. Right. But when you're the condor, your focus is on hunting for hucha. You see hucha everywhere. Hucha, 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 hucha. If you haven't refined your consciousness, you're going to see a lot of people to dislike. You're going to see a lot of unhappiness. You're going to see a lot of competition and, you know, disparities and things. Well, there's a prophecy that there was some change in the totem of the upper world, and it's changed from the condor to the hummingbird. The hummingbird has a completely different view. The hummingbird is the bringer of Sami, of the animating life force, of the light living energy. Okay. And as we do our personal work and we use, we can use any tradition, but in the Andean tradition, we learn all kinds of ways to move and tune energy. And we start with ourselves and, and try to improve ourselves and refine our own consciousness. And we, we, the move from the third to the fourth level can be seen as the move from being the condor to the hummingbird, where at the third level you see hucha everywhere and you, you, you decide, I'm the one who's going to eat all that hucha. <laughs> okay, you get your nose in everybody's business. And it's good because we need to address the ills of the world, but it also can be oppressive when we're holier than thou. And, and, you know, sticking our nose in because of our, our values are the only right values. But when you shift to saying, how can I be the bringer of Sami? Then whenever you see difficulty or heaviness, instead of trying to eat it, 
you say, what can I bring, what Sami can I bring out of myself and bring to this situation? How can I raise the vibration of this situation? And your whole doing this is about bringing more Sami out of yourself, you know? Um, so it's a total value shift and, and really shifting your worldview to say, I'm going to be the condor or I'm going to be the hummingbird. We kind of, in the, in the transition, we have to be both. You know, in the tradition, we say, do your own work, okay? Eat your own hoochah and don't stick your nose in everybody else's. <laughs> do your own work. Be the bringer of Sami to your life, to your family, to your immediate loved ones, Create a heaven on earth in your family and your work group. You keep it local, you know, and and don't don't worry about the ills of the world. If we're all just doing our own work, we're going to transform the world individual by individual. It's it's you know Gandhi's famous quote: "Be the change you want to see in the world." That is so. The Andeans are right on board with that. Deal with your own hucha. So. You mentioned the um, the idea of the the, um, the Hanak Pacha. Can can you speak a little bit about those three levels? Because those seem really yeah. important and, and and quite relevant to to a lot of things. These, sure. These most most yeah. Most indigenous traditions or uh, shamanic traditions have a concept of the three worlds. There's an upper world, a middle world, and a lower world. The upper world tends to be the kind of heaven-like world. The, the, the realm of more of paradise, we'll say, of enlightened beings, of goodness and well-being. Okay, the middle world is the a world of both, you know, light and heaviness, and the lower world tends to be the challenging world that's very heavy. Okay, and the Andeans have this concept as well. Hanik Pacha. Pacha means a lot of things in Quechua, from you know dirt and earth and soil to time and space and realm and world. So Hanuk means upper, so the upper world. And we see it as the realm of pure Sami. Okay. When we have perfected ourselves to the sixth, fifth and sixth level, we're kind of ready for the Hanuk Pacha. The Kai Pacha is this human world, which is both heavy and light. It's full of both Sami and Hucha. And only human beings create Hucha. The entire natural world, every insect, animal, whatever, they're pure Sami. Only human beings through our consciousness, but through our complexity of our emotions and our interpersonal relationships and our judgments and stereotypes and all those kinds, our shadow, we create heaviness. Okay, So the human world is both heavy and light. The lower world is... It gets a bad rap because a lot of people think of it as like a hell or a purgatory, and that's not correct at all. It's a place of regeneration. It's a place of people that have been really heavy in their lives, okay, and and haven't accessed their Inca seed and haven't learned to be an Aini and reciprocity, okay. And so you, the lower world is a, is a deep inner world, but also we call it the lower world, and it's a place of regeneration. You're, you always can change. We're, according to the Andeans and many other traditions, we're always already saved. We're all going back to where we came from, which is God. There's no hell. There's no being cast into the darkness. We always have a chance to improve and to 
grow. And that's what the underworld is about, a place of transmutation and regeneration. We get that chance to do our work. The interesting thing in the Andean tradition, and, and I, I think probably in other traditions, and I don't talk about this in the foundation training, but I have what I call an advanced class called the master class. We talk about this. Those three worlds aren't just out, outside of us. We have those three worlds inside of us, inside our energy body, the hanuk patches above our head, the, the lower worlds below our feet, but inside our energy bubble. Okay, so it's spaces within our energetic body. And the way we're mediating our capacity to be perfected human beings, the way our Inca seed is pulling, it up, pulling us up to our godliness, in contrast to the way our shadow and our traumas and our life experiences and our, our morals and judgments are keeping us fixed in our more animalistic self, you know, our genetic self, our competitive, territorial, fear-laden selves. The way those two are interacting is, is our kaipacha, the quality of our lives. So we're, we're, we can use the energy of our lower world to regenerate those places that were heavy. We can pull inspiration and energy from our higher selves, which are perfected, and it changes are the state of our being. Our body, from the top of our head to the soles of our feet, is our kaipacha. And the way we are in our kaipacha is the state of our world, our local world. And with all of us together, the state of our global world. So we have the three worlds within us, and we're working those three worlds. A lot of it, when you get, when you get trained in this tradition at the third level, you're doing ceremony and ritual to connect the three worlds, and it's this outer... There's not really a personal identification with what those three worlds mean as energy dynamics for your conscious development. At the fourth level, we're working the inner three worlds, you know, so. Uh, th th there's two other quotes which I found really beautiful and I think very uh, pertinent, too. The, the first one was about this idea which you spoke about earlier um, of duality, and, and the second one is very interesting about seeing the world as it actually is. Mm -hmm. um, one of the interesting things I, I find quite powerful about working with tobacco is one of the main qualities that's associated with it is, is seeing the world as, as it actually is, which, you know, kind of talking about these various cultures, it, it is this very universal principle. You see it a lot within like Vedic philosophy of this idea mm -hmm. of Maya, that we see the world through an illusion or yeah. in Christian thought, that's it. As you said, that many of these things are mistranslated, and uh, the, the word apocalypse is very mistranslated as well. It actually mm -hmm. means uh, to see the world as it actually is, the, mm -hmm. the, the yeah. end of the veil. It's not the end of time. It's the end of seeing the world through a veil and to actually lift the veil and see Lifting the world. The veil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so th this first quote uh, I found really beautiful. Um, it says, before we go into this concept any further, is it, important, it is important for you to understand that being in harmony does not mean being in balance. Balance is a dualistic term. We seek to equalize two things, or alternatively, to make them the same. Andeans, however, prefer to recognize inherent differences, as in Amerigo's phrase, 
the complement of differences and to preserve the individuality of the two entities. Mm -hmm. Within the cow saipacha, for example, male energy is a vibration or flavor of energy distinct from female energy. One is not better, more powerful, or purer than the other. They are simply two expressions of the infinitely creative cow saipacha. In the Andean tradition, as we encounter different flavors of energy, we strive to recognize the distinction and to celebrate it, end quote. Mm-hmm. And then the second quote uh, is uh, about reality. And uh, it says, the, the Melchor Dessa teachings are predicated upon the ability to discern energy clearly and objectively without judgment, without overlaying the immoral kausai pacha and projections of our own prejudices, fears, expectation, and the like. In Quechua, the verb kawai means to see, and the kawak is one who sees. To be a seer is to be able to discern the quality of your energy interchanges and how they contribute to creating the very conditions of your life. The goal of Melchor Desa work is to see clearly enough to fully empower yourself to create a life that expresses your greatest potential and finest gifts. Juan describes the goal this way, we want to see reality exactly as reality is. We want to develop the capacity to accept it exactly as it is. This work is about moving beyond your personal expectations and wishful thinking. You learn to see the Kausai Pacha as waves of energy. Then you develop the clarity and maturity to choose which wave to ride, and you surf it effortlessly. Um, I found both of those really interesting. Um mm-hmm. You know, again, we we seem to be living in a time where it is very divisive. And also, as you were speaking about about uh, morality or values, we there there does seem to be this this very interesting time about also with the second quote about questioning reality and the differences of reality. For example, these male or female energies, light and dark, up and down. And it seems like maybe, also as you're mentioning part earlier, part of the Western intellect is maybe we've gotten away from this re, from this idea of that there actually is a reality that is embodied in nature, and that nature is, uh, you know, a most powerful teacher of actually learning the principles of nature, which the Indians really seem to be connected in. That 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 through the observation of nature, uh, one actually begins to learn about the 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 reality of nature, as he said. Yes, um, there's so much to say about that. <laughs> okay, um, and let me start by saying that there's a um, there's motifs in Western culture about Mother Nature and us uh, kind of prettifying nature. Okay, the the that. Um, we have this sense of the, you know, the Garden of Eden, the pristine nature, and and um, and we need to go back to I think it's Yeats or whoever it was that said, "Nature's red in tooth and claw. Nature's brutal. <laughs> You've been in the jungle. <laughs> I wasn't in the jungle two minutes, and I was jumping because I was being bitten by fire ants. <laughs> you know." You, you, you die in the jungle if you don't know nature, okay? So, um, so the reality is that everything 
there's a complexity to the world. And oversimplifying it through a lot of prettified spiritual, uh, you know, rose-colored glasses is, is just delusional, okay? Um, there's great beauty in human beings, and there's great capacity for ugliness and evil in human beings. There's great beauty in nature, and there's great ugliness in nature, okay? Um, We have to accept it all, okay? Um, In that way, nature is a metaphor for ourselves, okay? Our own true nature. We're red in tooth and claw, and we're also, you know, we have the better angels uh, within us. So we have to accept all of what we are. In, in our, I haven't talked about our mystical anatomy, but kawai, what you were talking about, kawai, is, a, uh, is from the root verb to see, to have vision, but physically to see. And that's associated with the, with the two physical eyes and the seventh eye. We have seven eyes. We count from the bottom of the body up. And this is the seventh eye, the conscious nyawi. Lots of traditions call it the third eye, okay? And kawai is using all three of these eyes. We have the two physical eyes, which see the physical world, and they see it with rationality and practicality, using our rational, logical, you know, um, mind. And responding to what's happening us in, a, in the most useful, efficient, practical way. That's the ideal, okay? But we don't live in just a physical world. These two eyes show us our physical material reality, the Pachamama. The Pachamama, is, a lot of people use that as the term for the earth, but it means the mother of the material cosmos. So the galaxies, the whole, the whole material world. We see, we know through these eyes, which are practicality and... and um, rationality. The seventh eye is our metaphysical eye, where we see beyond the physical, that that, that there's more than just the physical, that not separate from, but interpenetrating the physical and the metaphysical. We have a capacity in our bodies, these, these are called nyawis, eyes, physically, literally means eye in Quechua. We have mystical eyes on our body. Okay? And this seventh eye allows us to be imaginative and creative and perceive energies. What we term the supernatural, because it's you know, not what we're told is natural to ourselves. It's some acquired thing, but it's natural to us. We just don't use this eye. Our culture doesn't teach us to use this eye unless it's a a beatific vision in your church or, you know, whatever, or or compassion for all creatures. That's seeing through here, okay? But we don't want to use just this. Then you're off in la-la land. There's a ton of people that are claiming to walk the spiritual path, and they're just out of their bodies. They're in la-la land. They're seeing everything as spiritual, even when it's, it, you know, it, it needs practicality <laughs> and rationality to deal with it. Okay, that's not okay or whatever. We have to have values and boundaries. So they're just off. People that only see through these through eyes are total rationalists, material realists. There's nothing spiritual about us, okay? So, but to see reality as it really is, is both of these, using both of these eyes. 
But these are the fifth, sixth, and seventh eyes, right? And we count the eyes from the bottom up for a reason. Because the way we work our heaviness, the way we refine our consciousness, is, is the way we take back our projections and our heal our triggers, which are the thing that end up causing us to create a lot of hucha psychologically, start at the bottom of the body with the first eye, which is in the tailbone. And then we come up to the belly, and then we come up to the chest, and then we come up to the neck. And these are the four really main eyes, okay? And as we're learning to see reality as it really is, we have to make a choice to, re- to work on ourselves, to cultivate our humanness and our metaphysical, our spirit and our soul. And it starts by doing the most heaviness we have is down in the seeking, down in the root of our body. This is our genetics. This is, our, this is where we're, we're mammals. Okay, that's the reality. We're highly conscious mammals, and we still have that DNA and those impulses in us. We're full of impulses and instincts for the preservation of life, for procreation, to gather food. I'm going to steal food from you if I think my kids are starving. It's survival instincts, okay? And we have to start refining those, and we move them up to the belly area, which is a place where we can actually take action in the world. That fear comes up from the the root and comes out the belly and we act. I go steal your food to feed my kids or whatever. Okay? But it's also the place where our passion is. And the passion is what motivates you in life to sustain an effort and and they can, you can have healthy attachments or, or unhealthy attachments through the kuyai of your belly. So you have to work on that. Okay, your relationship with the world and, and uh, your, your ability to take action in the world through your personal power. You move it up and you come to the only center in our mystical body that has no heaviness, which is the sanko. It's translated in most Quechua dictionaries as the heart, but it's not the physical heart. It's the center of your feelings, the higher human feelings, especially love. And in the Andes, you can't, tra- that the word is munai. But you can't translate it into English as just love. You need two words, as Juan says. Love and will. It's the choice for love. Okay? And then we, we cultivate. So we come up and it touches our feelings. And this is a Sami-filled center, so it tends to refine things. Okay? Emotions, those big survival you know, genetic, instinctual emotions that can come out of our belly through our actions. When we come up here, we're starting to refine things. Most people never move things up here. It's, it's a practice. If we can make it through the feelings, then it comes out the kunka, the throat, which is the place where we express. It's the, it's the quality of rimai. Rimai means the ability to express any of your powers, your action, your love, or your knowledge. But we, that's how we express it to the world. So if something comes up out of my psyche because I'm triggered and my, you know, my, I'm angry or I'm fearful and it just shoots right up out of my, my mouth, I'm starting to yell at you, I'm calling you names, I'm, you know, I'm ripping you apart, right? It almost doesn't touch my feelings. But if I can bring it up slowly and refine it, then I can express my displeasure with you without you know, slaying you. 
I can still own my truth. That's my truth. But I'm not going to destroy you in the process, you know. But then if we can bring that energy up through our two eyes and just really see what's going on. What's the reality in the physical world of what's going on? And what's the metaphysical reality? How can I bring my spirit, my creativity, my imagination to it? Then I can see, say I'm in fear about something and I'm gonna, it comes out. And instead of coming out and I say something that slays you, you know, I let it get tinged by my passion and my feelings and I almost bring it up and touch or these, this energy is able to come down. And what comes out is, hey, this is my truth. I really didn't like what you just did or what you said. It violated some of my values and here's why. I'm not going to slay you and judge you and tell you how awful you are. I'm going to say, hey, this is my truth and in my world, you know, whatever, whatever. But I, I'm going to bring some, I'm going to temper it with practicality, uh, rationality, and a sense of you're a spirit that's struggling. And right now I can see you're in fear. And I'm not going to react to that from my seeky, from my root. I'm going to come at it and say, yeah, I see you're in pain, but you know what? The way you're expressing your pain is not okay with me. It's dealing with the reality. You don't have to love everything. It's not rose-colored glasses and bluebirds and pink ribbons. But it's expressing yourself through your sami rather than creating more hucha. So these are centers of our human capacities, and we, we work them. And we learn to move energy and tune our responses so we're not so reactionary and we can tune our responses and we can be true to how we feel and what our values are and, you know, what's going on in this situation, but we don't have to create a lot of heaviness doing it. That's kawai, being able to see reality as it really is in all its heaviness and all its lightness and kind of trying to choose Lightness. But here's the thing to understand about that. In a lot of the kind of new age, you know, spiritual stuff, it's all about love and compassion and, you know, no, seeing reality as it really is is saying, you know what, I'm really mad <laughs> or I'm really sad or I'm really in fear right now. Not letting that control you, but you have to feel what you're feeling and own what you're owning. When you've refined your energy body, you can mediate it out in a way that's not denying what you're feeling, but also not, you know, slaying someone with it or creating hoochie with it and stuff. But um, those aren't negative. There's no negative emotions. This is where the morality comes in. The Andean tradition is knows we have to have value, but as a spiritual tradition, it's amoral. It doesn't impose a moral framework on humanity. So, yeah, I'm feeling fear right now. And that doesn't make me less than. That just makes me true to what I'm feeling right now. Okay. Um, oh, that person committed suicide. They're going to go to hell. They gave up on life. No, no, it's just a death doesn't matter how you died. There's no moral judgment on suicide versus, you know, dying another way. There's just, there's no moral overlay on energy. There's, a, there's values because we have to have values in the reality of human community and life to live together. And in our humanness, there's values. 
But in the purely energetic realm, it's a totally amoral. I like to tell people, let's go to physics. Are there demonic photons and angelic electrons? No. Energy is just energy. And that's how we see cosine. It's just energy. It's devoid of moral overlay. It has lots of different uh, compositions. It can be an electron or a photon or whatever. But there's no moral overlay on that. There's just a spectrum of letting the animating energy flow through us and empower us and lift us and expand us or us shutting it down, us slowing it down and make and then making ourselves feel heavy. It's all life force energy. There's no moral overlay. That's the hardest thing for people coming to the tradition to understand. You know? So it's not that we don't have values, but we're 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 we try to cultivate um, um, a, a compassion, I guess, that, okay, I'm seeing you in your shadow right now. I recognize it as such. I'm not going to condemn you for it. I'm not going to let you, you know, hit me or hurt me or whatever, but I recognize what's happening. That's seeing reality as it really is, too, but from using the seventh eye as well. So, yes, it's an incredibly practical tradition which is what I, what I love about it, what's kept me on this path for so long. It's about being a better human being, a more self-aware human being, you know. It, it's really about that. It's kind of an energetic psychology in a way, you know. One of the quotes you that, that I also found really important, and it's it's right near the beginning of the book, which I don't know if that was a choice, but it, it seems very pertinent, and it... Um, you say, although I acknowledge the counsel Juan Nunez de Prado once gave me, that it is patronizing to sentimentalize the Indians. Um, and I think that's very interesting, uh, you know, for a few reasons. You were mentioning, like, that the Andeans are very practical, uh, and in this way that they're, they're not living in a false reality or dichotomy. And, and kind of like as you were talking about this idea of, that, that many of us have. And, and interestingly, I think many people who have this idea, as you said, like that nature is a paradise, they're often people who haven't spent much time in nature. <laughs> they, they often tend to be city dwellers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, often, uh, I mean, this is kind of maybe a guilty pleasure of mine, but sometimes when people have that mentality, there's this one video that I always find really moving and not in a good way. And it's a, it's a pregnant deer and this Komodo dragon is coming over and it's just eating her alive as she's screaming in anguish. And finally he gets to her stomach and he starts to tear that open and her, her intestines are coming out. And, and this, this baby that's fully formed pops out and, and it starts to stand up, you know, it's come into life and he just gobbles it down in one gulp. And then he goes back to the mother (laughs) And it, it's quite shocking, I think, for a lot of people, um, because I think a lot of us who are removed from nature, we, as you said, like we, we don't see the side that is very harsh. And, and, and yeah. hopefully as humans, we are trying to evolve past living like yeah. that because there's something in us that realizes that's not conducive to, to a harmonious life. Um, and, you know, it's also interesting because I find myself in this role uh, that, that a friend of mine, uh, I got it from him, um, mm-hmm. but, but he calls himself a bridge keeper. And, and it's someone who, who's kind of bridging these traditions but between a more indigenous point of view and a Western point of view, because I've, 
I've come from a Western world, uh, yeah. and, and yet I've I've found great value, and I've lived for for many many years now with, with various indigenous groups. Um, but often, you, you know, when when I'm around um, the West, I often find myself kind of defending more indigenous practices and worldviews and cosmologies and their knowledge. Uh, but also when I'm around people who maybe idealize indigenous people, I'm also trying to justify, as you spoke about in the beginning, all the value of the West, you know, and all of mm -hmm. the goodness, which I think often those people forget about. Yeah. Um, so I, I, this is kind of a long-winded question, but, but going back to that idea of sentimentalizing, you know, the Indians, as he said, yeah. uh, there, there's also a, a really beautiful quote that uh, a guy who I interviewed who works for a big organization called ICERS, which is the, one of the European organizations that works a lot with uh, plant medicines. And he said, when the Europeans first came to the Americas, uh, they, they looked at the indigenous people and they said, these people are too indigenous. Uh, they need to be more European. And he said, nowadays, it, it's the same mindset, but it's the opposite way. We People look at the indigenous people and they say, oh, my God, they're wearing shirts and they have cell phones. They're too Western. They need to be more indigenous. And yet it's coming from the same mind place. Yeah. And, and kind of like he was pointing to, this idea of sentimentalizing someone, it is patronizing because you're actually putting yourself above them. You're saying, I know better, you know, mm -hmm. that either the best person or you're the worst mm -hmm. person, but either way, you somehow are, are projecting that you know better than them. So I, I guess the question is, is how do you find yourself in that role of, of because it seems like you also are a bridge keeper in a way of, of mm -hmm. someone who came from the West, has a deep understanding of the West because it is who you are, mm -hmm. um, and yet you found all of this value in indigenous cultures. And and, you know, as you said, so many of the things we are discovering now in science and things, they're not new principles. They're, they're things that have been said by indigenous people for, for, for yeah. millennia. Um, and there is so much value in that. So do you, do you find yourself in that place? And, and, and I guess maybe the essence of the question is, is how do you find yourself bridging those two worlds together? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. And um, the term in the Andes is a chakruna. A bridge builder, someone who's straddling, you know, straddling two traditions. Or there's lots of manifestations of ways of, of being a bridge builder. You know, we have a lot of very deep archetypal tropes that run through Judeo-Western culture. The deepest of which is the Garden of Eden, and we were kicked out. <laughs> okay, the 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 literal uh, biological. Um, what's the word, um, manifestation of that is that you got kicked out of the womb and then the cord got cut. Those two things are very mythic, deep uh, expulsion from the womb, and suddenly you're alone in the world and you're very vulnerable. I think that's so deeply imprinted in our DNA and our cells, Okay. We're the creatures that have have to be taken care of the longest. I think of any any creature on Earth. You know, we're like twenty before we're considered an adult. <laughs> Can take care of ourselves. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> on the other hand, we have these. You know, we have this religious. You know, um, and spiritual mythologies and stories that go back to the the pristine Earth, the Garden of Eden the uh, uh you know the before we were fallen 
And we project that out. It's just deeply ingrained. Whether you have a religious sensibility or not, you can't have grown up in a Western culture and not being in, not carry those archetypes deep within you. Okay. So we and we rarely sentimentalize nature, and I think part of that's just purely psychological. We have become so divorced from nature that we have this deep longing in our bones and our DNA and in our psyches to reunite with the natural world because our lives have become so artificial. You know, you, you talked, you know, I, I'm just guessing, but I think that people that, uh, you know, live in the jungle and that live high in the Andes or the settlers that were trying to settle the Midwest with this brutal summers and these brutal winters and living in sod huts, they did not sentimentalize nature. The indigenous people love nature because it keeps them alive, but they're not sentimental about nature at all. They want Western stuff. They want their lives to be easy. They want pots and pans and watches and cell phones now and solar and electricity. That's just human we're projecting onto them if we don't see that, okay? I saw it back in the 1990s when there was nothing. There was, you know, we had to haul our own food in, and now there's roads and solar panels, and that's fantastic. They want to be part of the world as well. So we have this idea of the noble savage, which is just a, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a deep archetypal mythical thing. What's so surprising is that in the Andes, generally speaking, as Juan educated me, they don't see pristine nature as necessarily the highest form of nature. They see it as salka. Salka is wild and raw, okay? They use the word salka about the jungle, okay? But they use the word salka about the mountains too and the, the pampas, which is just big, you know, vast stretches of grassland and stuff. Uncultivated nature is not considered very refined. They believe that nature is to be cultivated, to be partnered with, but nature is better and improved. Humans improve nature when we cultivate nature. Not as we do bulldozing it and destroying it. They're in partnership with nature and um, but but they wanted to cultivate nature, right? It's very difficult to grow food way up, you know, sixteen thousand feet up in the Andes. It's cold. Their water comes down out of the mountains. But if I can direct that water, it's much better for my. I'll grow more crops. My kids will be more healthy. My herds will be better. So they created these, you know, stone aqueducts that ch channeled water down from the mountains. They terraced the landscape. They cultivated nature to improve human life. Um, and the metaphor for that is in their cosmovision and their spiritual system, which is about the cultivation of the raw, instinctual, you know, mammal human into an enlightened human being. That's about cultivating our human nature. So they're all about cultivation. And they don't do not have any um, pie-in-the-sky ideas about Mother Nature. Because they have a bad winter. They, have, they could have a 20% mortality rate of kids under two. 
They're not very happy about that and thinking, oh, Mother Nature. <laughs> you know, they're thinking that was a brutal winter and we've lost 20% of our kids, you know. So it's it's a projection of us on, on them. Let me tell you a little story. It was one of the most instructive stories Don Juan ever told me. When he first start, started working with Don Benito Cori Waman, which is a, a Paco on the outskirts of Cusco, he's a, Juan was an anthropology professor at a university in Cusco. He's a Westerner, okay? And, but he showed up, and all of the people that were coming to be, you know, to see Don Benito for healing or whatever, and all of the other apprentices were indigenous people, and they were all dressed in, you know, the native clothing and rubber sandals that were made out of abandoned tires, and they had certain kinds of hats, you know, the air flaps and whatever. And so he said, I don't want to stand out. I'm going to dress like them. So he went to the marketplace in Cusco and bought the stuff. And when he showed up for to work with Don um, uh, Benito, he was dressed like an indigenous person. And um, he was sitting outside waiting for Don Benito to call on him because he used to call on him to come in and assist with his in his healing clinic. And he just kept walking past Juan for hours. He totally ignored him. Juan started getting kind of ticked off. And finally, after a couple of hours, Don Benito walked by him again and he said, hey, you know, I'm, I gave up a day at the university. I'm here. You know, I'm always supposed to be helping you and you're ignoring me. What the heck is going on? And Don Benito was like, oh, Juan? Is that you, Juan? My apprentice is a mestizo university professor. Why are you dressed like an Indian? That's all he had to say for Juan to get the messages. We have to be who we are. None of us are Andean Pacos. I'm a U.S. female Paco. You can be a French Paco or a... Canadian Paco or whatever, okay? You can be a Buddhist Paco or an atheist Paco or a Catholic Paco. We have to be who we really are. That's what the whole practice is about. Not try to play act somebody else. So we don't need ponchos and we don't need hats and we, we just need to be who we really are. That's your Inca seed, you know? And, um, and, and that's that's part of the practicality of the Andes. They see themselves as who they really are. And I'll tell you, they're human beings. And man, I want pots and pans. I want a cell phone. I want to see TV. I want to learn to read and write. And then they look at nature and say, oh, that can be improved upon to make my life easier without destroying nature. So they cultivate themselves. They cultivate everything. That's the hope. That's progress. That's movement in, in our expression of what's possible in this amazing world we live in we don't leave it as it we came into it we improve it now granted because we're so second and third level we're destroying it you know but i always tell people that are in the environmental movement oh they said we have to save mother earth we have to save mother earth and i'm like no you don't mother Earth's just fine mother earth's been through meteorite crashes and ice ages and 95% of species died off and Mother Earth sprang back and look at the amazing variety of life we have right now. Mother Earth is just fine. If you want to see reality as it really is, you better start naming what you're doing properly. I need to save the human niche 
in nature. I need to save the conditions in which human beings can flourish or even survive. That's all we're doing. So we have to be real, and you know. And I challenge them. Quit saying you're saving Mother Earth. I'm trying to save humanity, or at least life as I know it. Maybe we need to change our lives. That's a value decision we need to make. Mother Earth's going to be just fine. She's always changing. You know. Anyway, so it, it all comes down to um, there's so many ways to talk about seeing reality as it really is. And it's all about that. Um, and there's lots of ways of doing that. I'm not saying the way that Andeans see the world is the, the best way. I find it a very practical, um, and it seems to um, it seems to match the human world I live in very beautifully and become very useful as a result. Where some of the other traditions I practiced didn't really match the human world that much. Meditation was beautiful, but it was all about my mind and withdrawal. I know the application of it is then to come out into the world in a better way, but there's a lot about um, certain other practices which are about not respecting the world or not quite abandoning the world, but I don't know, judging it pretty harshly. You know, and the Andeans say, yeah, there's a lot of evil stuff. There's a lot of evil human beings. There's a lot of bad stuff. Nature's red in tooth and claw. Let's do something about it, you know. And we start with ourselves, with the, the tooth and claw in ourselves, with the way we're, we're uncultivated, we're raw and wild. And then we can, be, we can change the world outside ourselves because we're going to be in it differently. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, being in the Amazon, even there, it, um, I think for a long time, there was this outside view that the Amazon was this pristine jungle and oh it was just kind of naked people running around. And... It's deadly. It's deadly. <laughs> yeah. And, and also what they're finding is, is there was, you know, all sorts of massive human settlements. I mean, what yeah. could even be described yeah. as civilizations now right. who were living in harmony with, with the exactly. world. Exactly. You know, and as you said, refining nature, uh, moving the rivers, creating aqueducts, creating places where fish could grow more uh, in abundance, creating soil like Terra de Preta, which exists yes. to this day, which is far more fertile than the native yeah. soil, cultivating food crops to, to make them more abundant, to make them more nutritious for, for humans, yeah. um, you know, uh, even when you walk around, it, I always find it very fascinating because, um Often, kind of when when Westerners come down, and, and uh, for example, the the local people are showing them um, ayahuasca vines. Uh, there's this idea that that all of those medicine plants were actually planted by humans, and and that's a very foreign concept for people because they think all of this stuff just must grow in the wild and it's just random. Oh. But it's not. It, there, there's there is this there's this this symbiosis, this harmony, yeah. this, this interaction, right. this this ine between humans and nature, and it's a very pro-human stance, you know. Which I think you were also alluding to that there seems to be a lot of this kind of anti-human, like humans are evil, and and as you were saying from this Andean or, or indigenous worldview, it, that's not the case at all. Like humans are. Our God made manifest, and and we're essential part of, of, of the harmony of, of not only the world but the universe. And God is, I mean, if you wanted to find whatever God is, it's the Creator. 
mm-hmm. right? Something from nothing. That's creation. And I think our most essential innate impulse is cre- to create. And, you know, I said the jungle was deadly. Well, it's, it's deadly to people like me. <laughs> but like you say, there are people that have lived there. They just, they were born there. They know it. The city or, you know, my suburb, it might be deadly to them because it's unfamiliar. We don't know. We don't know the realities of it. You know, it's very practical realities. Um, but when you look at the state of the world, so, so many people are so in despair about the state of the world. But if you step back, um, I'm trying to think of the name of this book I wrote. I think it was called Factualness. Oh, I can never remember. But it's about the state of the world and, and really st- statistically what what has changed over time and <clears throat> all kinds of um, studies that have been able to accumulate, you know, numbers and stuff. And the world is in the most amazing, the most amazingly healthy um abundant time ever just a hundred years ago the the mortality rate from germs was astronomical there was terrible illiteracy the way human beings lived was awful we were flea bitten and lice ridden and struggling for enough nutrition every day that was the state of most of the world it's totally changed. We're living in a heaven compared to just what people 100 or 200 years ago. The, the poorest American is living in a grander way than a king in England did in, you know, 1420 or whatever. The conditions of our lives are unbelievable, and that's because of our creativity, our, our, our three human powers, our love, our knowledge, and our action. Medicines are saving millions of people. Millions of people have clean water, have, you know, antibiotics, have women are being educated. And by just about every parameter, the world is unbelievably better than it's ever been in terms of human, the quality of human life. Now, that's not the only parameter, but in the parameter of human life, we're living in a almost a, a heavenly realm compared to just a couple of hundred years ago. Now, is there still great deficits? Yes, there's great hunger, and there's millions, hundreds of millions of people without clean water. But we know it, and we're doing something about it for the most part. A lot of people are doing something about it for the most part. We never had the capacity to do something about it until really the 20th century. With medicines and technology, we have the capacity to be godlike in the world. Because we're third level, so many of our leaders are second and third level, we hoard resources and we wield power in a way that's about force and, you know, things like that. So we don't distribute our, um, the bounty is not distributed equitably. And, but we know that, and we you can't you can't solve a problem that you don't know. We know our problems. There's just not enough will, you know, among enough of us to make a difference. But in the local, remember it's local and global. There's people everywhere across the globe making enormous, bringing enormous lightness and sami and health and goodness in a local way. 
whether it's their community or their state or their province or their country. Um, so I, I don't see how we cannot be optimistic. If we're looking at reality as it really is, human life has never been so good, so healthy, so nutritious. So we have the luxury to talk about these abstract things, to choose a spiritual path, to decide to be a painter or a writer or to, you know, play video games and have leisure time. <laughs> that is new. That's not very old in human history. We've just lost sight of how unbelievably amazing our, our bounty is, you know. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah I, I know Steven Pinker has done some amazing work on that, uh, written yeah. some, some fabulous books. And and I think that is, I think that's another thing that's often, I find misunderstood with a lot of these, what could be called shamanic paths or, or indigenous paths is there often is this archetype of suffering in them and that, you know, one has to overcome the suffering or, or go into the ukupacha to really refine these energies. But that through doing that work, there's a levity, there, there's a lightness, there's an optimism, there's, mm -hmm. there's an appreciation, there's a gratitude, there's a, there's a humility and an awe at, at, at who we are and the absolute gift that, that, that we're alive and we have a place in this universe. And, and I think a lot of that negativity, you know, for all of the good things of the West, one of the bad things of, of living from that mind-like state is there's a lot of rumination. There's there's a lot of focusing on the negative. There's a there's an entrenchment of, you know, seeing the glasses as as half empty and yeah. Um, We're still the condor. I, the condor yeah. is the eater of hucha. There's a lot of hucha to eat. We need condors. But we're also learning to simultaneously be the hummingbird and see all of the goodness and all of the light and be that as well. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's about the harmonizing. Other you know, you said something about the, the, the um, you know, the male and the female and the in and the out and that, that kind of that we do live in a dualistic world. And it's not that we're going to, you know, kick the, the condor off the pedestal of the Hanukkah and replace it with the the hummingbird. No, they're both going to fly. We're going to fly with both of them because as long as there's human beings that are not have not attained the sixth level of consciousness, there's going to be hucha in the world. There's going to be suffering in the world. Um, so we want to be able to see the hucha in order to deal with it. But at the same time, we can see um, the amazing quality of our lives and all the beauty in the world and in people, and we can be the hummingbird. It's about creating a harmonization, balances, you know, we want to make them the same. No, hooch is hooch, and, and, and sami, sami, they're different. They're always going to be different. But we can harmonize the way that we're seeing the world as both condor and hummingbird, as both eaters of hucha and as bringers of sami, you know. So it's not either or. It's, it's kind of Boolean logic. It's both and. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, there was a really beautiful quote, which, which I think uh, kind of summarized a lot of that. And, and it says, the, the real value of the practices of the Indian sacred tradition is to help us to live life consciously, 
to live life consciously. That mm-hmm. is what the choice of the spiritual path is about. Yeah. It is not only about cultivating qualities that enhance well-being, such as non-judgment, unconditional love, forgiveness, mm-hmm. patience, and the like. It is also about being conscious of your every action, thought, feeling, emotion, intention, intuition, dream, and vision. Mm-hmm. It is about bridging worlds, not being immersed in either the mundane or the magical. And it is about having the courage to leap from the bridge into multi-dimensionally multi-dimensionality with your eyes open and no bungee cord attached to your ankles. It is about conscious fluidity. Um, Towards the end of your book, you you, you speak about some practices that that can be very practical for people. And and I think that's often something that's lacking is, is, um, you know, it's interesting because I think as as Westerners, one of the good and bad qualities, one of the dualistic qualities we have is this uh, intellectualization of things, mm-hmm. uh, philosophizing of things, speaking about things. And, and that's super useful. Um, but what's also really useful and essential is the practice, the action, mm-hmm. doing things, not, you know, at a certain point, there's enough talking and we have to begin to do things. Right. Um, And and so I think that's a really important thing in your book is is you give some examples of things we can begin to do to to put these practices Mm -hmm. into reality. Mm -hmm. And and for some people, they may not have the ability to travel to the Andes or travel to the Amazon jungle or go to Tibet. And ultimately, maybe those things aren't essential. That that also what you're saying is is a lot of these traditions are very practical, that they're things we can begin to implement. So... Is that something you could speak about a little bit? Maybe if, if there's people who are interested in working sure. with some of the ideals or principles, how they could actually begin to, to yeah. make a practice of that? Yeah. You know, we're, we, yeah, we love to talk and, and um, there's to understand the Cosmo vision and to understand it from our worldview and the, the complexity of our lives. We do a lot of translating and we philosophize and, I know my experience with teaching is students want to know more. They're asking questions. They're going into this philosophic. So we go there. But like Juan and the Pacos say, don't believe a word I say. (laughs) Okay. Just do the practices. It's in the doing. Juan says, you don't have to understand a thing except really heavy and light energy and how we create it. And just do the practices and see the results in your life. Okay. You'll see it in the doing. Um, and so we actually have, oh gosh, over three dozen practices like I teach in three months. It's kind of overwhelming, but I just want everyone to have an experience of them and get them down on the audio tape. And then, you know, you work through this over years and and stuff, but there's really two simple, simple practices that are at the core of everything. They're the foundation of all of the other three dozen practices, um, and these are the only two practices you need to do. And Don Juan, uh, Don Benito, Cory Waman, one of Juan's teachers, would say, well, just, just these two practices, you can reach the sixth level of consciousness. You don't have to know a damn thing about the Andean Cosmo vision. Just understand what Sami and Hucha are, okay? And then it's simply moving energy. It's simply allow, like we call it Saman Chakwi, and the other is Saiwa Chakwi. Saman Chakwi means doing something with Sami. Saiwa Chakwi means um, 
working with columns of energy, being being supported by energy, okay? So in Saman Chakri, which is our core practice, we simply just use our intention to draw down the, a, a concentrated stream of the life force energy. This life force energy is always going through us. We'd be dead if we weren't moving life force energy through us. But we pull a concentrated stream down, and we try to perceive that flow of life force energy over our energy body and through our body, right? And I said that hucha is just slow sami, okay? So as we draw this sami down, it's going to hit some of this slow hucha. And it's going to speed it back up to its natural state. So we're going to be flushing out or transforming some of our hucha back into life force energy instead of sluggish life force energy, very rejuvenating and empowering life force energy. And some some of our hucha is too heavy. It can't be transformed in, in that session of work. So we connect with the earth and we just stream our heaviness down to the earth and she composts it for us. She speeds it back up to Thami and recycles it, okay? That's it. We're bringing life force energy down. It's without us having to do anything. It's touching our hucha and transforming it. So we, we're empowered. We're rejuvenated. We're revitalized with more life force energy. This can then lead to more self-awareness. We make the choice to improve ourselves, to step up the stairway of the levels of consciousness, to, you know, try to be more Sami-filled in our relationships. We make different our values might become more refined or more beneficial to the group or whatever, okay? That's it. Move energy through you. Move more life force energy. Quit blocking life force energy. And then we have a second practice, which is sometimes it's not about revitalizing ourselves with life force. With, with a, It's not about releasing our hucha. It's about empowering ourselves, okay? Sometimes we feel sick. Sometimes we, we have a project we want to do. We don't feel we have the personal power to do. Whatever we feel that we're, we're, we're lacking in vigor and strength and motivation and those kinds of things, whenever we feel our power waning, we simply just connect with the earth and we pull earth energy up. Earth energy has a different quality than just the kausai that's kind of coming from creator, from whatever created this physical world. We'll call it cosmic energy. But, but the material earth energy has a different quality to it. And it's very empowering and strengthening. So when we feel like we need to be empowered, then we don't do the whole drawing down, releasing hucha. None of that. That's a different practice. We just simply connect with the earth and draw the quality of earth sami up into us and empower ourselves. That's it. No ritual. No outer form. It's invisible work. Nobody will ever know you're doing it. You can do it sitting at your desk, washing the dinner dishes, mowing the lawn, having a conversation. <laughs> it's simple. Not, no outer form. It's all perceiving, moving, and tuning energy. And in the process, perceiving yourself and tuning yourself. So very simple. You, you, people could do it just from the description I gave them. <laughs> you know, it's... it's the journey is not about learning practices. The journey is about refining your capacity to be in Aini with the metaphysical world. We're so tactile and visual and auditory. We've got it down for the physical. 
We're not we're not trained to to be as sensitive and in such engagement with the metaphysical. So quote unquote spiritual paths are really about perfecting this other capacity, which is the being able to sense energy, perceive energy, move energy, tune energy, the mystical world. Okay. And we want them both to be whole. We have we want to cultivate both qualities. But it's all about cultivating our own consciousness, doing our shadow work, being in relationship in different ways, you know, loving ourselves more, those kinds of things. You know, it's all inner invisible work. Yeah. But those are the two main practices. Just so simple. I say that the Andean tradition for me, I have kind of a science background and, you know, self-taught in certain ways. And I say that the, in terms of the metaf- metaphysics, the physics of the, you know, um, energy and the metaphysical world, um, that the Andean tradition is like getting a Ph.D. in, in um, energy dynamics. Um, it's nowhere near as difficult as getting a PhD. Believe me, I did a PhD <laughs> program, and it um, it's nowhere as tedious. Uh, but it, that's it's really like a it's just a super education into energy dynamics, and the practices that help you improve your sensitivity to being in greater Aini with the living universe. Yeah. Well, Joan, this has been wonderful. Um, are, are there any topics we didn't touch on that you'd like to? We to never address? got to ayahuasca in the, my ayahuasca book, <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that's fine um, because this is my primary focus right now when I share with others and stuff. But no, I, I'm, um, it's been a, de- a delight, and you have really, I think, singled out in the quotations you read and the points you made some of the really core dynamics of the. Andean tradition, and it's just been my, it's always my pleasure to share this tradition. It's changed my life, and I just want to share it. <laughs> you know, mm. that's my Inca seed, sharing it. So thank you maybe, for that opportunity. Yeah, maybe we can do round two and talk a little bit more about your ayahuasca book and more, more in depth into these traditions, too. I would love that. Um, thank you. There was one more quote that I had written down that 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 I uh, I think would be great to 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 leave with. Um, okay. And it's uh, it says pushing the kausai is using our personal power to reach our full potential and in the spirit of Tahe is that how you pronounce it maybe uh, in the spirit the of uh, T A G E Tage. Oh T A Q E. T A Q E yeah. Take. Take, Joining. Yeah. It means to join energies. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, pushing the Kausai is using our personal power to reach our full potential and, in the spirit of Take, to empower others to reach theirs as well. Mastering such skills takes diligence and patience, but all of Andean practice is undertaken in the spirit of Puklai, or play. One describes the work as a cosmic game. To walk the Andean sacred path is to cultivate an attitude of joy and wonder. Mm-hmm. If the sacred work ever becomes work, then it is not the sacred work. Juan refers to the Bible and Christ's teaching that we must become as little as children or as little children. 
The Kautzaipach is marvelous, and we must behold it as such, notwithstanding the need for us to be sober in our accumulation of personal power in order to push the Kausai as co-creators and to develop the moral system to use it constructively and compassionately. Mm-hmm. Um, that just seems like a beautiful way to, to kind yeah. of sum up a lot of the principles. yeah, <laughs> yeah, playfulness. Yeah. We're not serious. Uh, you know, I mean, we're serious about the end, our goals, but the process of refining ourselves is playfulness. It's joy. It's, the, you know, it's, uh, yeah, we're, we're not overly serious. Yeah. Well, wonderful, John. Well, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing and, and all the work you've done uh, as an individual and in your writings and your sharing. I, I think you. you've done a great service. And kind of like as we spoke about before, um, uh, the, the, the teachers that you had learned from, that, that you had written, that the Pacos in this book are, uh, you know, have now all left this work. And, and I think it's a, it's a great testament. Uh, all, you know, all of these people are, are a library and to preserve that information, to share it, to, uh, to get it out there. I, I think is, um, it's a prophecy that many indigenous people have that we are living in this time of, of kind of bridging the medicine of the different directions to, to create a new earth. And, and I think people like yourself are, are really doing your part to, to, to fulfill that process prophecy. So I, okay. I, I thank you for that. Well, if people are interested in knowing more, I write a blog on the Andean tradition and um, just a little bit of self-promotion for a moment. It's kentiwasi.com. Kenti is Q-E-N-T-I-W-A-S-I. For Western, for English speakers, there's no U after the Q. So it's Q-E-N-T-I-W-A-S-I, which means basically House of the Hummingbird. Um, and I take, um, I've been writing the blog for like seven years, so there's a vast archive and they can take a, a dive into it if they're interested uh, in learning more. So. And if people uh, are interested in contacting you or, or buying your books, is, is that website the, the best place? You know, I don't actually sell my books through my website. <laughs> you can go to Amazon or my publisher or whatever. Um, but if you're interested in training and the kinds of trainings, there's a page there called Learn the Andean Sacred Arts, and there's a little drop-down that says Upcoming uh, Workshops. It's a blog that's really um, um, directed toward people who are on the path. And, and just, I've spent 28 years, like, listening to Juan's every word, and I'm like a walking encyclopedia in some ways. I, I take a scholarly approach to trying to preserve what he's taught and his teachers taught him, and so I try to preserve it by passing it on through the my blogs. So. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you so much, and uh, and welcome. I look forward to, to hopefully connecting in the future. And, and again, thank you for coming on and sharing, and, and again, all the work yeah. you've done. Well, thank you, and I honor your Inca Seed and the way that you're uh, bringing so many wonderful guests and so many amazing topics and interesting topics to the wider audience um, and satisfying people's curiosity and piquing their curiosity. So um, thank you for for. holding this container for those like me who are um, like to talk about it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, my pleasure. (laughs) Um, Thank you.
All right, everyone, that's it. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Um, if you're listening to this on YouTube, if you can hit the subscribe button, turn on the notification bell, like the video, uh, leave any questions or comments in the comment section, all of those things really help with the algorithms to get the show out to a bigger audience. Um, also, if you've been following this podcast, uh, if you uh, were aware of the last episode, uh, the YouTube version of one of my episodes was taken down by YouTube. Um, I, I wrote a little bit more in-depth post on that, uh, but really about the dangers of censorship and the control of information and narratives. So I've also um, <clears throat> uploaded all of my videos to Rumble and Odyssey. So if you're listening on that, similarly uh, subscribing to the show, liking the videos, that again really helps with the algorithms. If you're listening to this on the audio version, whether that's Apple, podcast or Spotify. Again, following the shows, leaving a starred rating and a short review, uh, that really helps, again, to get the show out to a bigger audience. So uh, I think that's it. Uh, my upcoming guests, uh, I have quite a few really good people coming on. Um, a guy who I met when I was in the jungle, Chris Kilhem, is coming on. He's also known as the medicine hunter. Uh, he works a lot with uh, plant medicines going around the world, sourcing really good quality ones. He's done a lot of work with indigenous people. He should be a really fascinating guest. Also, his wife, Zoe, is coming on. Um, she does a lot of... Uh, uh, really good work, especially giving women opportunities uh, in, in the field of plant medicine and psychedelics. And uh, she comes from a lineage herself. So that should be a really interesting interview. Um, I have some interviews planned with some people who work with uh, ancient um, civilizations, talking about the similarities and just kind of forgotten history of a lot of ancient cultures. Those should be some really good interviews. I also have a woman uh, called Melanie Reinhardt, who uh, is a big astrology, uh, big into astrology, and uh, wrote a really good book about Chiron uh, or Chiron. Uh, so that should be a really fascinating interview. Uh, there, there's quite a few people lined up. Um, I haven't done the interviews yet. Um, um, but that should be some of my upcoming episodes for the, the first few months of 2023. So to all of the listeners, uh, wishing you a very happy new year. Uh, thank you all for your support. Um, also, if you are able to support this podcast, uh, Patreon is a really good option. It's a subscription service. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who have done that to all of the patrons as always thank you very much for your support uh, it's what allows me to keep uh, making these podcasts and bringing who i consider these really important voices out to the public um, and if you're able to do that i deeply appreciate it um, and uh, i think that's it again wishing you all a very happy and prosperous 2023 and uh, thank you all for the support. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I will see you all on the next one. Mm -hmm.